So um, just as a little background before we jump in, we're going to be in Matthew 6, um, Matthew six twenty five through 34. Um, but just a little background before we jump in, this is sort of the middle of Jesus uh, preaching a sermon himself. And before, um, he has been doing miracles all over Galilee. He's been teaching in their synagogues and sort of uh, getting a movement going. He's got his followers with him, and he also has these huge, huge crowds that are following him because he can heal the sick and because he can speak with authority. So in the midst of all this, he brings his um, dedicated followers, he brings his disciples uh, to himself, and he goes up on a mountain, and it says he begins to teach them. And as we've seen and as we've read, he starts this big sermon. So we've seen the first part of the sermon, which is called the Beatitudes. Jesus gets his followers together and he says, Blessed are you when you're mourning. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you're at your neediest before God. Because you recognize that you can't do this on your own and you need God. Right? He's saying, blessed are you when you recognize your need for God. And then the second part of the sermon, he starts correcting some of the teachings of the day. The teachers of the day, um, the Jewish leaders, were also concerned about the kingdom of God. They were concerned about a physical kingdom, and they don't want to lose that kingdom, because they've, they've had that happen before. They've turned away from God. They've said to God, we don't need you. We've set up our kingdom. We're strong enough without you. And they go into exile. So now they're back from exile, and Jesus is saying, we need to recognize God here. And what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were saying was, well, we need to be able to do this without God too. We need to have our list of do's and don'ts so we don't mess it up again. So Jesus says, you've heard it said from the religious teachers, don't do this, don't murder people, don't commit adultery, don't do these sins. But Jesus turns around and he says, but the heart behind those sins is what's truly evil to God. If you've got anger in your heart towards your brother, then that's, that's just as evil as going up and killing him. If you've got lust in your heart for a woman that's not your wife, right, that's... Just as bad as going cheating on her, right? So Jesus is, is turning these things on his head and he's showing us that the motivations of our hearts are what drive our behaviors. And we're in a third section of the sermon now where Jesus is saying, so we've said this about when you do evil, but when you go to do good, when you go to pray, when you go to give to the poor, when you go to fast and submit yourself toward God, even there, the motivations of your heart are the important part. If you walk up, in front of an assembly of people and you start praying really loudly and all you care about is how much those people like you or all you care about is how, much, how cool those people think you are because you can say really cool words, like the motivation of your heart there is not, to, is not like the first part of the sermon where he says, blessed are you because you need God. The motivation of your heart is, I don't need God. I can, I can perform really well on my own. Or when you go to give to the poor, if all you want is for other people to think that you're a really sweet guy, or a really sweet lady who really helps out, then that doesn't really show anybody that you love God or that you need him or that you're in need of God. That's just another selfish motivation. So that's what we're in the middle of when we get to verse 25. And Jesus is going to sum up this part of the sermon on the motivations of our heart. Um, In verse 25 where he starts with, Therefore I tell you, because of all these things, because you see you need God, because you're my committed followers, and you know that the evil in your heart can not only cause you to do evil things, but ruin the good things that you try to do. Because of all that, and because you're the people who are uh, committed to submitting yourself to God, don't worry about your life. That's where he's going to pick up. If you want to stand and read this with me, we're in Matthew six twenty-five. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can pick up one of the gray, uh, gray paperback Bibles on the seat next to you, and those are yours to keep. 
If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you today. Uh, Read this with me. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can be seated. (laughs) Um, So, Jesus says, do not worry about your life. The word worry there, in some translations, might be don't be anxious about your life. If you've got the King Jimmy version, it's going to say, do not give a care about your life. Um, Really what we're getting at there, and I think what Jesus is getting at is, um, don't be preoccupied about your life, your clothing, what you will wear. Don't be weighed down by these needs that you have. He's basically saying, don't be distracted, right? Don't be distracted by your needs. Um, Oftentimes, we can be distracted by worry or anxiety. This was uh, made very clear to me by preparing a sermon. (laughs) Um, I'm very anxious, and what I did was, I tried really hard to have my outline and talk to people and get my advice, and I was like, all right, I can do it. I can do this sermon all by myself, and it'll be great, and I don't have to be worried. But that doesn't really work, right? This is a a case in point, like, I need God, right? I need to pray to him. I need to rely on him uh, to speak his words through me, right? I can't just... I can't just do it all by myself. And, you know, we do it all the time. We're distracted by cell phones. Like, if your phone buzzes in your pocket, raise your hand if you're not going to answer it. Or at least look at it, right? <laughs> I mean, I did this the other day. Um, I did this the other day. I was in community group. I was talking to Dan. You know, we're just chatting about life. And phone buzzes next to me in the middle of our conversation. It's not even my phone. It's, ne- it's my wife's phone. It buzzes next to me. I'm like, oh, I better check that. It's like, I don't know, it's like her friend telling her a joke or something. And like, somehow I let that distract me and get in the way of something that really mattered. And get in, get in the way of me talking to my friend, right? So we do this. We're, we're distracted. We're preoccupied. And that's what Jesus is warning us against. In his uh, first example in verse 27, he says, Look at the birds of the air. Uh, Your father cares for them, he says. He cares for the birds. He doesn't say the bird's father cares for them. He says your father. Your father in heaven cares for the birds. Um, And that's that's an interesting thing. Made me think of my grandparents. They have a bunch of bird feeders and they had all these like Folgers cans that were unlabeled that had like, some of them had thistle seeds for the birds. Some of them had like rusty screws and stuff like that. But it it was my job to go get the cans and dump them into the thistle feeder. And they had them strung up and like caged in so that squirrels couldn't get there and get to the bird seed and 
so the big blue jays couldn't like fly up and mess with the little sparrows. So they were like, they were careful and they were protective of these birds. But when I would go inside with my sisters to have a real meal, they were way more careful with us, right? They would meticulously cut these little apple slices and put a little peanut butter lovingly on each one. And they, they, they took way better care of me and my sisters than they did of the birds, right? And, and we knew that. We knew that we weren't getting fed out of an unlabeled, perhaps Rusty Nails Folger can. We were, being, we were being fed the best that they had because we knew that our, our grandparents, they cared for the birds, but how much more they, they really cared for us. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 26 when he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus is trying to say, you are. You are of more value than they are. Your body and your life matter to God. Just, and we see that the birds matter to God, but you matter even more to God. And that, that is a reassuring hope that we have, that God uh, values us really highly. Um, in Luke, Jesus, um, Luke is another gospel writer. He chronicles the Sermon on the Mount as well. And he includes a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12, Verses 16 through 21, if you follow along, it just says, And then Jesus told them a parable. In the land uh, there was a rich man, and his fields produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and all of my goods. So here's a guy. God has blessed him abundantly. And he's like, Wow, I have way too much stuff. So... He's going to build brand new barns and put all of his stuff in there, right? Good or bad? It's, it's good. It's fine, right? This is a neutral action. The birds fly down from their perches and they go find thistles to eat. We wake up in the morning and work and store away things and try to provide for ourselves, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a part of what it is to be human. Adam and Eve leave the garden and God says, by the sweat of your face, will you eat bread? Paul in the New Testament, speaking to the young churches, says, hey, if you've got people in need and they refuse to work, they shouldn't eat. Work is a a Christian value. It's an important thing that Christians need to do. We can't just sit there and expect things to happen, right? Our grandparents don't go out with a seed and put it in every bird's mouth. But they do. They provide for the bird's needs, but there's there's a give and take there. So he's okay here. He's putting his stuff away into barns. He's being wise. But in verse 19... Uh, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He shows us where this man's motivations uh, turn him a little astray. In verse 19, the man says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So the motivations of his heart are not a man who says, Oh, God, thank you for providing for me abundantly. Right? He's not a man who's, who's looking around to see what God has done. He's not a man who's looking to the needs of the people around him. He's, not, he's got no hope in the future there. He's got no uh, love or charity for people around him. He's blinded by his own needs, right? He says, okay, soul, I've got my food. I've got what I need to relax. And this, this is my life right here. He's blinded. He doesn't have a, a broader vision. And in verse 20, God says to him, you fool, this very night, Your life is being demanded of you. And these things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so it will be for those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Uh, It makes us think of what Nathan shared with us last week about our treasures in heaven. 
how we need to have an open hand with the things that God provides for us. And the only real way we can have a real open hand is if we're constantly reminding ourselves that, hey, God has provided these things for me, and I'm free to give them because I know that God will will provide for me. Another example that Jesus uses um, comes in verse 29. He says, look at, the, look at the flowers of the field. All right, he's, first he, he's told us about our food and our body and how God cares about our body and our life. Now he's going to talk about the clothing that we wear and our, our physical bodies. He says, look at the lilies of the field. Um, are you not, uh, where are we? <laughs> Sorry. We're in verse 29. He says, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. Solomon, King Solomon was uh, a king of the Jews before they turned away from God and before they lost track of things. And he was the wisest king. He was the richest king. He, uh, I believe he had the greatest territory. And he's like, he's the superlative king. The book of Proverbs, the Jews' holy scriptures, some of them are written by Solomon. Like, he's, he's a big deal. And he was very, very rich. He had like, well, he had like 700 wives and a million, million chariots and all kinds of stuff. The, the books go on and on to tell you all the stuff he had. So if this guy, if Solomon, in the clothes that he would wear, if the lilies of the field are provided for just as well, if not better, than Solomon, surely God, who, who cares for the flowers, can also care for us and provide for our clothing. He says, um, he says Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I don't know about you guys. I like to have flowers in my house. Natalie likes to have flowers in our house. So right now there are, I think, four vases of dead flowers in our house. And that's great. And, but, you know, they were alive once. They were a really nice gift when I brought them home. But now they're just, and kind of brown, right? But we care about flowers. We like flowers. I, I put them in a vase. I took care of them. I put, I put them in water. I put the little plant food thing in them, right? And I cared for them. But now they're dead, right? I'm going to put them in my compost pile. They're going to turn into brown mush that gnats are flying all over, right? You hear the example, they, they would use the grass of the fields to, as their cooking fire, right? You cut down these beautiful things, and you just throw them in the fire, you know? They're not worth much once they're done being beautiful, They're not worth much. But our bodies, we know, are not meant for the fire, right? Our bodies and our lives in God's eyes are not meant uh, for the trash heap, not meant for the compost to just go away into nothing, right? Our hope goes beyond that. Our hope goes beyond that because we know that Jesus is coming not just to restore creation and set these wrong things right, set the wrong motivations of our heart to be the right motivations. He's also coming to restore us physically, like our body and our soul and this world and the things that we see and have around us. That, that is our great hope, is that our body is not for the rubbish heap and that God is coming to restore it. And that's, a, that's an important thing. We don't want to be blinded by our needs right now and forget to look ahead to the hope um, of, our, of our bodies being restored by God. Um, he goes on after that in... Uh, verse 32, to talk a little bit about what it looks like to be blinded by our needs and, and who is blinded by their needs. Remember, Jesus is talking to his, his disciples, his close followers, the people who have already committed to following him. So we can, we can say allegorically, he's speaking to Christians, right? He's speaking to us here who have said, we're on board. We see the hope. We see the vision. 
uh, that God is, is casting. We see that we want to plant churches. We see that we want to spread the gospel. And we see, like in the first section in the Beatitudes, that we need God for all of this. But he says this um, in verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What will we eat? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. Who are the Gentiles? Um, the Jews were also, like Christians, a covenant community. Right? They were the covenant community of God. They were chosen by him uh, to do the things that he said and, and to obey him. And Gentiles was just that simply their word for people who aren't Jews, people who are not in the community. And Jesus is saying, the people who are not in the community of God, who don't understand that there is a hope beyond this life, and who don't understand the vision and mission of God on the earth, they are the people who worry and are, are preoccupied with, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What should we wear? And they strive for these things, he says. He says they strive for these things. I think one great example of, these, uh, of a person who kind of I, uh, really embodies these qualities of somebody who strives after these things would be um, Downton Abbey. Who, I mean, Downton Abbey, these are people who do walk around a lot saying, ooh, what will we eat, too? What will we serve for the Princess of Worcestershire, Dalton? She's coming tonight. You know, and they, they walk around like, well, what? What should we wear now that the war is over? And so, you know, that's pretty much all they care about. I don't know if you've watched a lot of Downton Abbey. Natalie likes Downton Abbey. So I've watched a lot of Downton Abbey, too. And basically, if you don't know the show, it really is just a family of rich British people around the turn of the century worrying about stuff. And so in one, one example, one uh, situation that I really remember is that Lord Grantham, the patriarch of the house, his tailcoats have been sullied, all right? His long, uh, like, <laughs> piano player tucks tailcoats are ruined. They've been sabotaged. And so he's going down to a formal dinner, and he doesn't have his tails, right? So how is he supposed to wear his white bow tie for his formal dinner? Well, and this is not a formal dinner. It's just like every dinner that they have. So <laughs> how is he supposed to go down? So the, like, the primary drama of the episode is him standing in his room with his servant who dresses him, saying, what am I going to do? Like, what, what will I wear? And they're like, well, you could wear your black bow tie with your short dinner jacket. And they're like, whoa. Well. And I, don't know, I don't know why a dinner I don't know why you can't wear a dinner jacket to dinner, but that's a big deal. So ends up, I mean, that, that's, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about being, being blind to the big picture of life by saying, like, what will we wear? Spoiler alert he ends up wearing the black tie and the dinner jacket, and it's okay. People think that, that Lord Grant, that'd be so rakish. But the only, yeah, the only person who doesn't like it is his mom, who says, ooh, you should have come down in pajamas. And that's the show. That's it. So, so these are the people who are outside the kingdom, who, who have no, no big vision. They're blinded by the things that, they, that we need. And we laugh, but in, in a big way, even we who, who know, who know the gospel, who know and we share the vision of Christ, like just this week, I was, I was blinded, right? I was like that, saying like, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this sermon? Like, I've got to do important things right now so that I don't look stupid on stage. And now I'm on stage looking at you guys doing this. <laughs> but, you know, so this, this creeps into our lives all the time. I think it's really important in... Uh, in time that Jesus is, is addressing this. So what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves as people who are putting up blinders? 
What's the solution? What's the vision that Jesus is casting for us if we don't want to be like that? He says in verse 33, um, Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. Strive first for the kingdom of God and your food and clothing will be given to you as well. People have taken this verse a lot of different ways over the years, right? If you, take, if you just read that, then all you really have to, you know, you're thinking like, well, all I have to do is pray and then God will give me all the stuff I want, right? And then we should say like, well, Lord Grantham should have just prayed and then God would have given him a tux with tails, right? <laughs> no, this is, not, this is not the vision that we're talking about. Again, that's another, a self-centered vision where we say, God's, I need God to give me everything I want, right? And that's the same as saying, I'm going to build huge barns and keep my crops for myself, right? That's, that's still a self-centered way uh, to think about the gospel and to think about um, the kingdom. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and these things will be given to you. Let's zoom in on the word kingdom. His followers are Jewish. The Jewish expectation of the kingdom is to restore something like what Solomon had. It's to restore a physical kingdom in Jerusalem that is ruled over by Jews and they worship God there. So they're under Roman oppression. They are not in charge of their own land. The Jews are uh, ostracized. The Jews are abused. And hundreds of years before Jesus and about 70 years after Jesus, there are going to be all kinds of Jewish rebellions and movements that are military. And they are, they are seeking for a kingdom. And they, they're called the Zealots. And they rise up and they're like, we're going to take down the Romans. We're going to reestablish a Jewish kingdom. Right? And so this would happen. They would get up a bunch of steam and they would get up a bunch of followers, kind of like what Jesus is doing. And then they would break out in open rebellion and there would be a, full, a war and a fight. And then, of course, the Romans, who are a fully-fledged, world-dominating empire, would crush them and kill the leader and the sheep would be scattered. Right? And this is what ends up happening uh, to Jesus, too. He doesn't rise up for a military victory. He's not shooting for a physical kingdom and the destruction and expulsion of his enemies. Jesus goes to Jerusalem to inaugurate his kingdom and he dies. He dies the death of shame, right? The Romans and the, and the Jews put him to death. Um, he dies on a cross because he keeps going around saying, man, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it as a zealot. You need God. You can't do it under the strength and power of military. You need God. So he dies this death in shame and he rises from the grave, right? Three days later, he appears to his apostles. He appears to hundreds of witnesses. And Jesus rises from the dead. He says, my kingdom is inaugurated. You are forgiven for your sins because I have died. I've paid the price for the evil things you have done. I've paid the price for those motivations of your heart that are evil. And I clothe you in my righteousness, right? And I give you my resurrected body. And I give you my righteousness, right? He, he gives these things to us in a spiritual way, um, in his spiritual kingdom. The Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles and the believers at Pentecost and they are empowered by the Spirit to change their behaviors. We as Christians are empowered by God himself to look at our motivations and make them right with him. So Jesus' kingdom is not inaugurated like the zealots. It's inaugurated by his death. It's inaugurated as a spiritual kingdom that that can go anywhere, right? Right now, Christians in North Korea and China that are being persecuted and killed and arrested for their faith are still part of the kingdom, right? They don't need a military victory, and we don't need a military victory to know that we are part of Jesus' kingdom on the earth. And it's not something that pushes out the enemies. It's not something that crushes people around it. The kingdom 
is inclusive, right? That's what the, the body of Christ is. It's a mosaic of everybody around the world from everybody from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different races and all that stuff. It's all inclusive, right? God is saying, I am making things right with humanity. I am making things right with everybody. And he's coming, he's, he has done that through Christ and we have that in the spirit and he is coming to do it in an ultimate way when Jesus returns and God restores all these things. So that's what Jesus is saying and that's, well, that's what he says when he means seek the kingdom. He's saying, seek this vision that I have. Seek this restoration uh, vision. Seek the gospel, and these things will be added to you. Seek the gospel, and these things will be added. 34, uh, verse 34, he says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring uh, worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The church, um, once Jesus had ascended, the church begins, and the apostles are like, okay, let's do it. Let's, let's try to seek for the kingdom. And what they do is um, they all get together, and this is sketched out in Acts 22, the Acts of the Apostles. Acts twenty-two forty-four through 37, it says this. It says, All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need. Day by day, they spent time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That's what it looks like to seek the kingdom together. It's people who, um, who have all things in common, right? In this way, God not only clothes us with his righteousness, God not only restores our body physically and spiritually, but he provides for us um, by the hand of the saints, right? By his people who are not blinded by their own needs, but they're looking around at the people in their community saying, man, what are your needs? Man, can I, can I help you in this way? Can I serve you in that way? I, I have abundance. Let me help you. And we're free to do that because we know no matter how much we give, our, our Christian brothers and sisters around us can give back and fill in wherever people have need. That's the vision of the church. And that's what it looks like to seek the kingdom. On the front of our bulletin, it says, Redeemer Community Church, a gospel-centered community on mission. Right? And that's, that's a, a good way to sum up our vision. We don't want to be blinded to the fact that we're gospel-centered. We don't want to be blinded to the fact that we believe and accept the good news that Jesus' kingdom is here. Right? We're gospel-centered. We're about that hope. And we're a community. We're a gospel-centered community. Just like we saw in Acts 2, we want to spend much time together breaking bread with grateful hearts. We want to uh, speak the truth to each other. Um, it says they spent much time together in the temple. That's kind of like what we do when we're gathered here and in community groups. We spend time together talking about the word of God, talking about what it is to seek the kingdom and praising God and having the goodwill of all the people, right? That's, that's a, a gospel-centered community. And we're on mission. They have the goodwill of the people and day by day the Lord adds to the numbers who are being saved. We don't just want to do it and like, okay, we've got a big vision for the kingdom. It's just us. Let's do it. No, we're a, we're a church that wants to empower its leaders to plant more churches like we were talking about earlier. We want to be part of big movements like Acts 29 that are saying, we want the gospel to go forward. We don't want people to have to live a life where they're only, where they say, oh, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? And that's it, right? Roll the credits. Like that's, that's your life. That's the ups and downs. Like we don't want people to have to live in a world where that's the most valuable thing that they can come up with. So that's why we're a gospel-centered community on mission. Uh, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. 
when Jesus was having his last supper with the disciples, he took bread and he broke it among them saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. He took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink in remembrance of me. So when we take this meal, we're remembering the gospel, what Christ has done for us. We're taking that together as a community. And then we're going to disperse and we're going to go out on mission to include more and more people into this vision of the kingdom. Um, But before we do that, will you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, thank you. Um, Thank you for the words of Jesus, God. Uh, Thank you that Jesus um, left heaven and he came to earth and he came to live with us and he came and lived a humble life and he died um, a terrible death. Thank you that you empowered him to rise again, God. Thank you that we have a gospel hope to believe in and we pray that as we take communion together that we will remember uh, the gospel and the good things that you have done for us and that we would take heart and know that you will provide for us. And Father, we pray truly that we would go on mission for you, that we would share this good news uh, with the people in our city and the people in our, in our families and in our lives, God. And we pray that you uh, would empower us to do that, not letting us be blinded by our own needs, but that you would free us to see your big vision. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.